welcome to Thatch and Earth, your guide to conservation-focused travel. I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. And today we're chatting to Mike and Dylan from Cape Rad in Cape Town. So Cape Rad is an amazing organization. They're built on three different pillars, marine conservation, marine research, and marine education. They're producing some amazing outputs, and they're also an opportunity for you to get really heavily involved with, with marine conservation on your next trip to Cape Town. And being something a little bit out of sorts for us considering we're based on terrestrial conservation it's a very interesting chat so without further ado okay so today we are chatting to dylan and mike from cape rad which is a marine conservation research and education organization in cape town absolutely amazing i won't bore you with details from my side i will let the guys take over so dylan and mike welcome would you like to give us a little intro on what cape rad is and who you guys are as researchers and as individuals yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, I think I'll give Mike a chance to intro Cape Rad and then we can give a little background on who, who we are individually. Yeah, hi guys. Thanks for having us on. So Cape Rad stands for Cape Research and Data Development. And um, we have a two-pronged attack. Uh, our first being um, scientific training for early career scientists. Um, so students or people of interest in ocean sciences and biological sciences. Um, they can join Cape Rad on one of our field courses where we do two-week and four-week programs training them in scientific sampling skills, um, project design, all the way through to the analytical data processing at the end of a program. Um, and then we also have our um, public outreach, our citizen science programs. Uh, and this is designed to expand to outside the scientific community and get the general public involved and passionate and interested and knowledgeable about what's going on out there, the marine research, the threats, the conservation issues. Um, and they join us on day trips or short courses where we try and impose some of our knowledge and experience to them and uh, try and yeah, get them excited about marine conservation. Amazing. That's fantastic. So um, did you guys both... Um sort of train academically in Southern Africa or have you sort of spent a bit of time elsewhere and then come in? Well, we both got started uh, at, a, at a small kind of organization in Mossel Bay, which is you know, four hours drive east of here about 10 years ago. Um, and it was a similar sort of volunteer internship program. Um, we were studying white sharks. So we kind of caught the bug there and then uh, went separate ways. I stayed and worked there for a little bit and, and then started studying at University of Cape Town and Mike went up to the University of Pretoria. And we stayed in touch throughout. We, we both came back and worked for the same company a, a couple times after that. And then not too long ago, I decided that it was time to do it better and, and differently. And we, we just thought that those kinds of programs that were more about the experience and more about being there and taking the pictures and seeing the stuff, but not really so much of a, a learning um, experience. And so we tried to start something that was a little more course oriented and had a, a more of a classroom component. And that's what our Cape Rad field course is. So we, we've got the academic background. Mike's also been doing, he's done some scuba diving and, and guiding and stuff. And um, he handles more of the, the in the water stuff, for Cape Rad, he's our resident scuba instructor and guide. 
And then I'm doing, um, in the classroom, I do bring a little bit more of the statistical side of things. And when we're teaching R and GIS, I'll get behind the computer and, and show that to our students. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think um, we, we sort of experience these other internships or um, volunteering programs and we realise that like they are based around the experience and based around maybe one animal or some kind of you know um, charismatic species um, and we decided that we wanted to give early career scientists and students more of a, a marine biology toolbox um, and give them the apl applicable skills of actually they can use when they leave here they're not just going to have sat on a boat and, um, you know, basically done ecotourism for a month. They will actually gain really important skills that a marine biologist or a marine scientist needs and um, take that on with them and, and hopefully it'll benefit them in the future for their careers or their future um, degrees that they go into. That's amazing. And... So as a bit of my background, I've gone through a lot of these sort of volunteer internship, paid internship courses. And I also found myself getting really disenchanted with them because I was like, I'm paying a lot of money to come and get some sort of skill that I should be able to sell myself on once I graduate or, you know, when I'm looking to change career. And I did find a lot of them were like, it's really just about your experience. This is a glorified holiday or essentially this is like a cheap way to spend a month in South Africa. And that annoyed me because that wasn't what I was doing. And so it's, it's really, really great to hear that. That's really inspiring to hear that that's kind of the route that you're taking because I've also got to that point where I'm like, something needs to change. And I think I really like the point of um, saying that you're giving back. It, you know, I think one of the biggest issues with a lot of these volunteer programs is although I don't have first-hand experience, the people I've chatted to say that there's no set structure in there. You know, you can go to one place and you're going to learn uh, a certain skill. When you go to another, you'll learn something else. But there's no like clear-cut answers as to, as a volunteer, I will learn X, Y, and Z because this is what I need to learn to benefit me for my future position. And it's really nice to see that somebody's actually like kind of cut through that noise and said, right, well, this is the core structure. These are the skills that you're gonna walk away with. You're not gonna just do whatever we feel like you need to do for the particular bit of research. You may get to try different things and on top of it, be involved in active research projects at the same time. And that's a really important combination because you know, at the end of the day, what it sounds like is you guys are custodians for the future generations as well as benefiting your own selves in terms of the research that you provide. And that's really important to have. You know, we need to bring up the, the new generations to come through and say that they've been empowered with the skill sets that they need because the job markets nowadays are ridiculously hard to get into. And anything that can benefit them is a, is a great opportunity for them to, you know, excel. So, it's really, really encouraging to see that people have kind of stepped up to the plate and taken that on, you know, and good up to you guys. I mean, um, I think we're seven minutes, eight minutes in, and it's, I'm already like really encouraged by the, the sounds of what Cape Brad's up to. And I know that when it comes to your courses, you actually offer courses and expeditions. Is there a difference between the two? And um, is there a particular target market that you're aiming at? Yeah, so the, the courses, or the field courses, they are particularly targeted at the early career scientists, the marine science student, biological science students, uh, looking for that toolbox, that, those skills that they can take away. 
Um, we obviously do expeditions within that course where we go out on boats and do various research projects and, and it's kind of all included within that sort of umbrella. But the expedition side of things on, um, on our citizen science side is another citizen science program where um, we're trying to expand into areas where, because obviously not everybody wants to get in the water, not everyone wants to get in a wetsuit. So the expedition part of it is basically trying to get people who are not particularly in water people, but they're still interested, they still want to educate themselves, still want to learn. And so we developed a, ba- a boat-based expedition where we take people out, show them the area, um, and also do some research projects, which mean you don't need to get in the water. So things like um, camera drops and uh, camera deployments through um, a system called Bruv, baited remote underwater videos. We drop them in the water where we drive around looking at the, uh, you know, the marine big five and whatever else is going on out there. And then we pull the camera up and we, and we play that um, recording straight back to them while we're still on the boat and show them the life that's going on underneath the water, which on a normal whale-watching trip or a shark-watching trip or sea safari, you would never see or, or know what was going on. Um, but we hope to sort of... In, but there's so much other life other than the big marine big five, you know, your whales and your dolphins, your seals, your penguins and your sharks. Um, show them the macroinvertebrate life, show them the fish life, show them the diversity, the biodiversity, biodiversity under the water um, while we're out there. So it's a citizen science um, thing, which is more directed at uh, the general public, your tourists um, and that side of things. That's amazing. That That's really, really interesting, because honestly, I've never really thought about it that way. Like I've kind of touched the edge of marine tourism and like taking people on these sort of marine mammal viewing boat trips and never thought that you know people could actually be interested in more of like the sort of holistic aspect of marine conservation of everything that's that's down there and actually giving them a chance to see it i think that's that's really a fantastic route to take yeah it's it's about creating that awareness and that engagement i think with our field course generally we we are dealing with students that are already passionate about science and conservation. And, and so as a way to, to reach out to the, the broader audience, we do these expeditions and these citizen science trips where we, we're just trying to show people how beautiful it is underwater and, and open their eyes to these incredible complex relationships and how they all work together and, and build, that, build that sense of ownership. So we, we put them in the water with the slate and they're recording data and, and that's their data that they've collected and it, it kind of means something to them. And in and, and that way, we hope to build that sense of ownership and, and get people to start looking after the ocean. Definitely. Definitely. I think conservation as a whole requires that, you know. Uh, the more people feel like they're actually getting their hands involved in the efforts, the more they'll want to preserve and protect. So it, it becomes almost our, our duty as people who really enjoy conservation to, you know, encourage others to get really first-hand experience in these fields because when they get first-hand experience, they're going to go to their friends and their family and say, well, you know, this is what I've done and it's so awesome. And then it might encourage them to get involved. And before you know it, you're getting the snowball effect and it has to start somewhere. And I know in the bushes, a lot of these efforts, but I've never really thought about it too much in terms of like the marine aspect. You know, you're mentioning Big Five 
for, for the marine side of things, and I actually, to be honest with you, not to sound naive, actually don't know much about that. I mean, I, I didn't even realize that there was such a thing as a marine safari. Do you, I, I know this may be a little bit off topic, but would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that? Well, it's, um, it's a reasonably popular ecotourism <clears throat> um, strategy uh, that a lot of people have kind of started doing where you can basically jump on a boat and you drive around the ocean, the bay or along the peninsula or wherever you might be, and you look for the megafauna essentially because that's obviously what you see from a boat. So you're looking for the whales, the dolphins, uh, you, we've got seals and sharks here of course as well, and penguins. Um, up in Mozambique, they do it with the whale sharks. Um, and it's basically a nice little trip out and generally you get your older audience, your older uh, demographic going out for a nice chilled boat ride. Um, but it's a fantastic opportunity to get in there and, and sort of um, show them what else is going on and sort of give them a bit more information than there's a whale over there and there's a dolphin over here. And, uh, yeah, try and sort of just bring out that passion and that interest from them. This is literally thatch and earth on a boat. Like, this is what we've been saying for months now is that too many people go to the bush, drive around in a game viewer looking for the megafauna. They, they go and hunt down ellies or rhinos or whatever it might be without realizing that the dung beetles in that ellie dung that you drove over searching for the ellie are just as fascinating and just as important. And it's it's kind of, you've got people almost sort of captive for an hour, they're on a boat. So now is an opportunity to educate while you've got them just as in the bush, you've got people in a car. They're not gonna go anywhere unless they're crazy. So take that opportunity and really use it for education. So that is just amazing to hear. So say if someone was going on a trip to Cape Town, um, are your expeditions like a day long or can they sort of add a few extra days and make it sort of a really massive part of their trip to Cape Town? Um, well, we have different things. So we have citizen science snorkel and scuba dive option. Um, that's only um, you know, two or three hours. So that's a nice morning activity. And a lot of people pair it with going to see the penguins in Simon's Town because we're literally a few hundred metres down the road from the... Um, African penguin colony here in, in Simon's Town at Boulders Beach. So people will come and do our dive and snorkel um, and then go and see the penguins or vice versa and spend the day in Simon's Town. Um, <coughs> the expedition, um, big five expedition thing, that is also um, a half day, but that's more sort of three or four, four hours. So a little bit longer and you get... You know, they come and have breakfast and have a nice thorough briefing about what they're going to do and what they're going to be involved in, what they might see about the biodiversity of the area and the sort of um, systems that are at play um, to provide that biodiversity before we go out and really give them a fuller, a thorough sort of education. Um, and then we do have other short courses, like um, we've just launched uh, our Shark Week course. And this is a six-day short course. And this is for, you know, obviously it's more focused on, on sharks. Um, so it goes into shark biology, shark ecology, um, shark tagging and tracking and movement ecology, um, dorsal fin and dorsal pattern identification workshops. And this is all paired with practicals of going diving, free diving, scuba diving, and collecting data, going on surveys with the marine biologists and um 
collecting your own data and then coming back and inputting it. So we've got a various few different activities of different lengths, depending on how much people want to, how long time people want to spend doing it. Um, and we also tailor make a lot of courses as well. If there's a, a small group, um, we do sort of put interest packages together for people. Interesting. It also sounds like your Shark Week program per se, it could be something that say someone who's spending seven days in Cape Town who's just coming to um, explore the wonders of Cape Town really and they wanted to get their hands involved in something that's not normally a tourist attraction that they could come and do that but it also sounds like you could add that as a qualification to say a budding marine biologist who's needing a specific skill set. Yeah exactly it's, it's, it can be quite varied and tailored to yeah like you say if it's a, a tourist who just wants some um, something unique and interesting to do as a, as a few days tour, or, or if it's a local young um, marine biologist or conservation budding early career um, person who wants to spend a few days developing some new skills and experiencing some real life marine biology work. That's awesome. Um, I must say, I think first that the shark course sounds incredible and I would like to do that. But also my mum has said so many times, like, she doesn't want to just have like the usual holiday in Cape Town because it takes two days to see most of the sites, like the tourist sites that everyone tells you to see. And she's always said, I'd love to go and actually do something interesting, learn something or gain new skills, but also stay in my really nice hotel at, like in the evening. She doesn't want to go on one of these volunteer courses where you're put in volunteer accommodation and it's not so great. Like she actually wants to just yeah, a bit of luxury. get, get you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, I was doing a little research on Cape Rad's website yesterday and I came across your guys' research foci page um, and was just fascinated at all the kinds of areas that you're like focusing on with, on research with. Um, there was two areas that really, really stood out to me. Um, the diver ecotourism, like the effects of diver ecotourism was fascinating. And then also the effectiveness of MPAs I thought was really interesting so I'd love to dig into that a little bit if you guys are cool with that so first um where what are you doing with the with the diver ecotourism research um can you just give us like a little background on that sort of where the idea came from for that and where it's going or has it has it finished or what's what's sort of the background on that yeah that that project is is an ongoing thing that we've been doing um, so a lot of the diving that, that we do here kind of piggybacks off of tourist boats and stuff. We'll hitch a ride with them and go uh, to a site that we want to sample on the way to where the divers are going. And so, you know, doing that time after time and, and sometimes diving with those guys, we realized there was actually a really good opportunity to observe not just the, the animals, but also the divers and see how they were interacting with the environment, with the wildlife a really popular dive to do here is seal snorkeling and seal diving. And uh, we wanted to come up with some, some kind of a way to not monitor that, but just maybe use it as a way to, to look at the impact that diving was having and, and seeing if we could find any changes in the environment or changes in the behavior of these animals. And so it's an ongoing thing that, um, we're still working towards. I can't say that we've really seen anything big here. One of the one of the things we've noticed for certain is compared to you know your Great Barrier Reef diving, um, the environment here is actually pretty robust. You can 
you're not really going to kick over a coral and cause a lot of damage. You can hold onto the kelp when it gets surgy and, and move with it, and you're not going to break it. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty resilient. I don't know that we actually are going to have a lot of the issues that you see in other places of the world. Is that partially because of the, the water temperature itself, or is it just purely because, you know, a different vir- environment entirely? I mean, obviously they are different, but I'm quite curious to know as to what would make, you know, the Great Barrier Reef more susceptible to that. Is it, just, is it because the coral is also very soft and there's, they're quite fragile, or again, does that fall down to temperature, and because the temperature is colder, the plants are more, the actual biology and the plant life that's in that area tends to be a little bit more robust, a little bit more hardened, weathered, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's a combination of, of several of those factors. So the water's a lot colder here. There's also, in some areas, a lot of nutrient life and, and you know, particulate matter in the water, so the sun doesn't penetrate as well. It's also in a very exposed section of the coastline where you you know, you experience a lot of wave action. And so in general, things kind of grow stronger and larger and sturdier. And we see that for sure on the the Western coast, the Atlantic side, which is very exposed to some of the larger storms. Um, And then on, you know, if we look at False Bay, for instance, so the peninsula of Cape Town, on one side, you have the Atlantic Ocean, on the other side, you still have the Atlantic Ocean, but some people like to consider that the Indian and, and call this area where the two oceans meet. And we see completely different life on either side. Um, I'm kind of getting away from the original question here, but um, things tend to be a little bit more delicate. They're still stronger and robust. I'm a little bit more delicate in the false bay side, and we see lots of little nudibranchs and, and the smaller stuff. But I think overall... It's just, yeah, the, the combination of, of wave action and temperature and light penetration that all work together to, to make a beautiful dive site, but a, a much sturdier dive site. They build them tougher, don't they, Lawrence? Yeah, true that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so interesting to hear this, though, because I, I would never have, I mean, it sounds so obvious now, but I mean, I would never have actually thought about it in the way that you've described it. I mean... Uh, fortunately enough, Phoebe and I have spent a lot of time surfing and surfing actually really gets you quite close to the environment, not necessarily underwater, but you spend a lot of time in different areas. And I mean, if you go surf by Scarborough, Cormacky side, which is, you know, as you say, on the more exposed side of the Atlantic, compared to if you're going uh, into the false base section, you do notice that even the kelp and everything around the kelp and the actual general feel of the landscape is different there is a noticeable difference in the way in which the terrain has been almost weathered on one side compared to the other so it it's very interesting to hear that that observation on it and also to hear that you were saying that the animal behavior itself hasn't had very noticeable changes is that because there's been less interaction directly with the animals or that there's no a lack of feeding behaviors that are happening like no one's actually feeding these animals therefore the behavior doesn't change too much yeah, there's, there's no um, direct feeding of the seals or anything. It is literally just sort of jumping in at their rookery sites and, and sort of playing with them. There's no kind of benefit for the seals as such. Um, but I also think, yeah, I think um, there's less sort of kicking of the bottom. A lot of a lot of it is mid-water sort of diving or snorkeling. Um, and these areas, like Dylan says, they are exposed to massive wave 
action at times. And so around the island, it's um, much sort of rubble and and it's not like your pretty delicate reefs. Um, in the And it's quite shallow diving in that sort of 10 to 15 metres of, of water, lots of wave action. So there's a lot less going on. If you drop down to 25 metres plus um, where the conditions are a little bit more stable, there's less sort of swell and, and wave action going on. It's a, a bit deeper and it's more stable. Um, you do start to see your, your fan curls and things. And then obviously the only people who are getting down there are your divers. And 25 metres plus, it's usually your more experienced divers with better buoyancy, um, better control as to what they're doing. And so there's definitely a relationship between also less people, way less people getting down that deep to those more fragile um, ecosystems. So um, I think it's just sort of a case of there's not too much to damage in the first place. And the interactions with the animals, there's no food or baiting involved. Um, so there's no manipulation of the animals either. I think also the, uh, the, the cold water works to our benefit here. It's not, again, like, you know, those exotic diving destinations, Thailand or Australia, whatever, where the water's warm and anybody can go and, and jump right in and just the, the swimsuit. You got to be a little bit harder, a little bit tougher here to dive. And uh, that keeps, keeps away some of the novice, just, uh, you know, weekend warriors that are, that are not so experienced and, and going to cause problems. Definitely. I've felt that. We did a dive or like a snorkel, not a dive, a snorkel around Camps Bayside one morning and it was the coldest my head has ever been in my life. <laughs> I have never been in so much pain because it was such cold water. But it's really nice to hear that, you know, that you hear a lot of negative things about divers, you know, standing on reefs or bashing things with their fins and stuff. And it's actually really nice to hear that perhaps these environments are a little bit more resilient. And so it's it's a it's a great place for people to come and actually just explore a marine environment if they can get a wetsuit on which is your portal to a whole new environment just get in the wetsuit you'll be fine and you like we've done a lot of snorkeling free diving in the kelp forest and that is the most spectacular place i've ever seen in my life like i just i try and describe it to people and it's just it's like in a forest, except you're under the sea, it's absolutely incredible. And I really think that's that's the kind of thing, it's it's super accessible if you can get in that wetsuit. And once you've seen it, it will quite, or it can quite easily become a passion. And it really has for both of us that any opportunity when we're in Cape Town and we'll go and have a little snorkel around the kelp forest to see what we can see. And it, it, they're just beautiful. And it's really nice to know how resilient they can be. Yeah, that's another thing that we're kind of trying to promote as a marine research centre and education centre as well. Like everybody knows about the barrier reefs, the coral reefs, and everyone wants to go and swim and dive and, and have a look at them because there's this incredible biodiversity and diversity of life. And uh, we're trying to promote is that kelp forests, although it's green water and it's a little bit cooler, if you're not too soft, it's well worth getting in and it's an incredible three-dimensional very biodiverse ecosystem, which is, like you say, very accessible on your doorstep, right off the beach. Is there. You don't need to go out on boats. You don't need to drive, you know, 20 nautical miles to get to the um, barrier reef. And you can just go and explore it on your own terms or, or with experts as, as and when you want. And it's, a, it's just as magical, if not more magical, than a, a barrier reef. 
It's being called the Great African Sea Forest. And I don't know how many of the, the listeners are going to be familiar with Kirstenbosch, but that's the National Botanical Gardens here. And it's one of the most beautiful in the world. And the kelp forests are like Kirstenbosch underwater. It's incredible. There's so much life. There's so much variety. You can spend hours looking at the tiniest little things and get lost in there. Yeah, one thing that I would say as well is if you go into a, a kelp forest, you um, <clears throat> wait if it's your first time or even your first few times, it can kind of look a little bit samey or a little bit um, sort of strange. But if you keep going in and keep experiencing it, or specifically if you come in with Getrad or, or a guide who can tell you a little bit about the relationships that are going on, the animals that are in there point things out to you and define sometimes there's so much going on down there it's difficult to define what's alive and what isn't alive in terms of the invertebrate life and the sponges and and things like that so um it is quite handy to have somebody to point things out and tell you what's going on as you learn and the relationships that are going on there because it just makes you appreciate it even more when you understand how complex and, and busy it is down there oh for sure there's there's, there's absolutely no doubt about it that if you are in an environment like that, that you actually need to have somebody show you if you don't have the knowledge firsthand because you miss out on the subtle signs that, you know, somebody with a little bit more of an educated perspective can give you. And, I mean, just talking from a guiding perspective, you know, if you if you just, uh, uh, for the lack of definition, a weekend warrior going to the Kruger, you know, you're getting in your car, you're driving around and you spend three or four hours and you're like, I haven't seen a lion or a leopard or anything. And what, what actually has happened is, is you've driven past them because there was so many obvious signs in the road. There was a drag mark there. There was vervet's alarm calling. There was a whole bunch of things that were saying to you, the animal's there. But because you, you had the windows up, you didn't have the knowledge, you're, you're listening to one of your favorite tunes and you're just cruising through the bush, you're not actually engaging properly. And it can be the same thing. I mean, when Phoebe and I first went snorkeling in uh, in False Bay, we, at this stage, I, I was still quite reticent because I, I really enjoy freediving. So I, I, I'm thinking snorkeling. I'm like, we're not going to do much. Uh, I was wrong to start with. Um, and the second part about it was is we were going around the forest and we didn't see too much the first time. And then we went with one of our friends who's quite, you know, versed in this sort of thing. And the next minute, in the same environment, she's like, look over there, there's a pajama shark, look over there, look over there, look over here. And before you know it, we realized that we'd missed so much the first time we got in that water. Um, and it is, it's definitely important to have somebody who has that knowledge to take you through and guide you. And I mean, places like Cape Brad would definitely be a place that I would like to go and, you know, spend a bit more time with. Now that I've got a little bit more knowledge, even still, I would like to further my knowledge. And that's, it's better to go with people who know what they're talking about because you then don't have to have such a steep learning curve. Somebody else can show you the road. I think with the, um, with the, to, to kind of bring that back in, we, with our citizen science, we also see that when you give somebody an objective in the water, they, or you can give them a task, they're a little bit more involved and they, they start to see things a little bit differently. So when we do some of our surveys, it's almost like a treasure hunt. And if you were just to go out, and snorkel aimlessly, you, you might not see as much. Whereas by giving somebody a task and saying, okay, we want to look for as many different things as possible and, and give them a few clues on what they might see and how to start looking for them, then they, they do start to see more. And 
and their eyes open in a different way that allows them to see more. Definitely. And I think that's a really key thing in the kelp forest in particular is like, this is what you need to look for. Because when you first look down there, it can kind of all, you know, it's like you say, it's not those bright colors of a coral, coral garden. It's kind of samey a little bit until you get your eye in and then you can actually see it. So I think that's really, really important to sort of guide people, sort of hold their hand and be like, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're seeing. It's just really difficult to perceive it. Um, So that's, sort of the diver side of things. Another area of your research that I really loved was the um, marine protected areas focus and the effectiveness of MPAs. And we've kind of touched on MPAs a little bit, but really not that much. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that and sort of how you're building up that research. Yeah, we kind of got away from that question there, got a bit sidetracked. Um, So the area that we're in, the Cape Peninsula, falls under Table Mountain National Park and the entire of that coastline is part of the Table Mountain Marine Protected Area, Table Mountain National Park Marine Protected Area. Um, I think there's a United Nations goal to protect 30% of the world's coastlines or something by 2030. Um, And the previous goal was 20% by 2020. And I I do think that South Africa reached that goal or 20% of their their national waters or something. Um, But anyway, with... Within this marine protected area are several zones that are restricted zones where fishing is either completely um, prohibited or certain types of fishing are prohibited. And a lot of these are areas that are readily accessible and and frequently dived by us, by other divers. And so we, we are trying to get an idea for what sort of impact they're having and looking at comparing the different types of life and the the abundances and diversity um, within some of these no-take zones or outside of the no-take zones or, you know, just on the border of these no-take zones and to get an idea for whether they're working. So the, the idea is that you partition off an area of the coastline and protect it. And that serves as like a reserve that um, fish, are safe within and they can feed and they can breed and then that sort of replenishes the nearby areas. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting to look at the dynamics of that because it's also something that, you know, fishermen know about and they might think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I can fish right on the edge of this. I'll get the spillover effects, but I'm not breaking any laws. And so looking at, you know, are there, does, first of all, does it work? Is it working? Um, is there kind of a gradient effect where deep in the, the heart of the no-take zone, there's more abundance and then it kind of fades away as we get closer to the borders and, and trying to ask all of those kinds of questions. Well, that's like just pointing out. Sorry, guys. Must our, have seen a our, whale or something. our office points out over Sam. A whale just breathed right in between the boats. They were looking at. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm so jealous. Through Dylan off his story. Yeah, that's our that's our MPA. That's the question, and then one of the ways we are trying to answer is with citizen science and also with underwater video, and um, and then in doing that, we can also see and and look at if there are differences in the methods, and you know, do we get a more accurate picture with video than we do with 
citizen scientist. That sounds pretty labor intensive, I must be honest. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's obviously a very admirable task that you guys are taking on board. Um, out of curiosity, though, how, how would you go about testing that? Do you have to do transects and then continuously monitor these? Um, yeah, again, what, what is the, the, the kind of testing methods that you're using? Yeah, so from a, a methodology perspective, the right way to do it is with transects and quadrats and those types of standardized methods. And when we have students, we're able to do that because we can spend time with them and train them and get them comfortable with those techniques. But to expect a citizen scientist to be able to do that is asking a bit much. So we tend to rely on the more simple methods and just do kind of, um, they call them SFMA counts or, or like a categorical count where you say, okay, I saw this species and I saw a few of them, or I saw many of them, or I saw um, one of them and just broadly kind of classify them. And it does take a lot of work. It takes a lot of data and especially with citizen science, because there's, there's always more room for error and uncertainty when you're relying on regular people and using just those kind of coarse categories. Um, and, and that's part of the reason that citizen science hasn't really been adopted because a lot of scientists think that it's, it's prone to error and uncertainty. But the reality is these days we've got statistical methods and we've got with even just laptops enough computer power to, to overcome and, and deal with those kinds of problems and data. Um, in the past, maybe not so much, but... Yeah, it's interesting. I was about to say, um, I know that from census work that we do, uh, particularly when we're doing game counts, that there, there is an obvious um, error, error factor that comes into play with that. I mean, on a, in an aircraft, you're moving at a fairly decent pace. So even if everybody is fairly, um, you know, ha has a fairly good understanding of the bush, they may miscount or that it is, as you say, a bit of a generalized count because there's no way you're going to be able to count how many Impala you're going past when you're flying at 150, 160 kilometers an hour, you know? So I I was quite curious to know then that there must be some kind of factor that you would have to factor in for the fact that you're using a citizen scientist who's making those counts. Um, statistically, would you add something in there then obviously that correlates that information accordingly? Yeah, so one of... I'm, you're getting the statistics nerd here now. But one of the things that I'm really curious about is, um, is how often like species are, are misidentified. And so normally in our citizen science, we do a little uh, introduction to the species they're going to see. We just we show them a few pictures. Nobody ever memorizes them all on the first day. And a lot of them look very similar. A lot of them have the same kind of shapes, same kind of patterns. And so... I definitely expect that people are confusing those, and I see that people are confusing those in what they write down. There's certain fish that you know to, that people are going to see and that others are less likely going to see, and, and I can see in our data that they get confused often. So we, to try to figure this out, we made a little test that, sh that shows pictures of, of fish or, or sharks or whatever we're interested in, in seeing. and then asking somebody to identify it and then you, you give them a selection of answers and see how often certain ones get confused and my my idea is that eventually i'll be able to say oh well this species 90 percent of the time gets confused for this species and then we can factor that into our numbers that we're getting from our actual 
Oh, surveys. Okay, interesting. So instead of it being a, a waiting on an individual's um, an individual's call, so say individual A will get. 80% of the calls right, whereas individual B may only get 50% of the calls right. You actually kind of factor those both in and then say between A and B, they will get these two particular species confused with one another. Therefore, these are things to consider when you go into correlating all that data. Yeah, both ways. So we can, we can say, okay, this particular person isn't such a strong identifier. They're going to have a little bit higher error. And then also go even more specific into the species that they're identifying and say they actually are confusing or maybe just in general, these two species get confused more frequently than others and incorporating both of those. Okay. And it's also that stats can do these days and that's why stats is so cool. Oh, don't start my stats, for God's sake. Well, look, it's very interesting because, you know, like you say, it, it, it's it's something that's very difficult to adopt in terms of the, the science approach. I mean, a lot of people, like you say, a lot, particularly scientists, have kind of been adverse to this. So, the more you can make it proven to be a scientific method, factoring an error, the more more chances of that data would be more factually correct. And it's really interesting to hear that there is, you know, people who are making steps forward in that and kind of embracing what others would not consider to be a normal procedure and turning it into that with the current technology that we have. So again, it's really encouraging to hear that. And I, I would also kind of be curious to know that, you know, I, I've never done something like this where I've spent time in a, in a scientific background. If, if I was to come and do something at Cape Rad, would you have any advice to offer me, particularly if I was trying to look at doing something uh, or say a tourist was kind of coming to do something to incorporate biodiversity into their travel, uh, such as myself, would, would you have any advice to a person like myself? Um, I would say if you want to sort of get involved with biodiversity and conservation um, in general as a tourist, then research what's going on in the area, who's doing what in the area, and using something like Thatcher what you guys are doing, um, is fantastic. Um, platform for people to sort of research what's going on in certain areas um, and then once you've found um, what you're doing um, you know throw yourself into it with a bit of enthusiasm and uh, yeah I mean have fun with it because at the end of the day um, we've got to keep it fun so everybody enjoys enjoys doing it and keeps coming back um, but Contributing as a tourist to these day trips and ecotourism is so important. There's a massive industry and it supports a lot of business, but also supports a lot of research, citizen science, um, funding for other projects and conservation um, areas. There are also lots of cool apps that are great companions for, for people in their own backyards and also traveling. One that I use all the time is called iNaturalist. You might be familiar. It's it's basically an online platform for observing biodiversity. And the way it works is you use your camera, you take your picture with your phone and um, you submit it into the cloud and you can tag the location, the date and what species you think the picture is of. And then other people will then review that and confirm or make alternate suggestions about what is in your picture. And then as soon as a certain number of people get that, it becomes research-grade data that uh, actually gets used in publications year after year. 
and it works all over the world. And the really cool thing, the really valuable part of this app that I find incredibly useful is that you can use it if you don't know what something is and take a picture and it will put it through some computer vision and machine learning and try to identify it based on what other people have identified. And so if I'm out on a hike or on a game drive or something and, and I see a cool plant and you know my botany isn't really up to scratch, I can take a picture with this app and get an idea and learn a little bit about what it is and what it's called i think that's a really really useful tool i think just it it kind of brings conservation more into the heart of what you're doing so rather than just walking past a plant say like on table mountain where there's all kinds of crazy plants you don't just walk past and be like that's a really cool plant you actually engage with them be like i've learned something and that will stick in your brain and you'd be like right when we next go on that hike we remember seeing that plant and it's sort of just i don't know it, it builds that passion which i think I know citizen science has a lot of flaws and I've sort of been on both sides of it, but I think a key value of it is that it's allowing people to develop a passion. It's engaging them with conservation rather than just saying, sit down and watch this documentary of half an hour of stuff that's happening in the bush, which has been filmed over two years. So it's not realistic. It's actually getting people passionate about what's going on, either on their travels or in their back garden and I think that is just so valuable and it can really sort of change people's perspective on the world as a whole. We've got a a new little project that we're we've launched Um, I was going to say launching we call it FinSpotter and it's kind of a similar platform that is meant to um, record the presence of individual sharks so there are a few species of shark here that are found only in this country in this region and um, they're called benthic sharks or shy sharks so they're fairly small they live on the seafloor but they they live close to shore so you can go and snorkel you guys probably have come across a few in your snorkels here Um, and a couple of the species have very distinct patterns on them so distinct that we could identify individuals and we want to create this database this platform where snorkelers take a picture upload it we can identify the individual automatically based on the pat- the patterns matching with, with previous pictures and then tell the divers right away, you know, this that shark that you saw yesterday was last seen two years ago on this side of the bay or, you know, create these cool stories and these cool interactions with, with science, with conservation and, and yeah, get people caring and, and personalize things. I, I really, really like that initiative because it, it, it kind of, it, yeah, like you say, it plays on the same kind of premise as the iNaturalist where, you know, firstly, you can contribute back to the data, which is at the at the end of the day, really important, you know, to, to know what the movements are of these animals is obviously of paramount importance to effectively protect them and also to have a better understanding of what they're doing. You know, the more we understand, the better we can conserve. And the other aspect of it is, is it creates that sense of accountability because now the person who's doing that is actually feeling like they're a part of something and therefore they're more accountable to hold others to protecting those those kinds of um, areas as well as the animals around there. And that's what we need. We need to start changing people's viewpoints a little bit more and start saying that in order to con- effectively conserve an area that we all need to play a part it's it's all well and good that you're stopping plastic, but are you also you know 
are you taking care of the environments around you to the point where that the animals in that area are benefiting from your actions? And it starts with something simple, you know, like just being able to identify an animal correctly or, you know, just making sure that the next time you jump into the ocean, you try to learn one new thing about it before you, you jump out of the water and you take your wetsuit off for the day. And if we slowly start doing that, we're going to notice bigger changes and it kind of is an exponential thing. And, you know, I, as, as we always do when we come closer to the ends of these podcasts, we always like to ask um, a particular question. And the question that I'd like to ask you to is, is, the, is based off the same sort of premise. If you could change one thing about biodiversity conservation, what would it be and why? <laughs> you have to edit this bit out while we wait and think. <laughs> we'll shorten the pause. All right, well, here's, here's one for you. Don't need a week. I'd make it more rock and roll. Yes, yes. (laughs) Make it more rock and roll, make it more charismatic, make it more important and at the forefront of people's minds because conservation is this thing. Make it sexy. Make it sexy. sexy, We try our best, but Dylan's wetsuit is tight in all the right places, but it doesn't seem. Um, but essentially, yeah, make it this kind of thing which people are quite easily sort of distracted or conservation is like this thing that you, you're on holiday and you do this one thing once and it's great and then you go home and you go back to your normal life. It needs to be something that is simple enough and straightforward enough that simple actions and behaviours can migrate into your everyday life, which has that knock-on effect and it's much better to do lots of small things very often than it is to do one big conservation trip every 10 years and help the elephants or whatever. If you can make small changes every day of your life, that's going to be way more effective. I could not agree more. I was literally thinking about that yesterday. I just think that it's kind of got a conservation's kind of got this reputation right now of sort of like the nerdy thing that's like, I don't know, it's just annoying for people or there's way cooler things that you could do. And if you could make it sexy is the only way to describe it. If you could do that, you will have cracked conservation and it will become part of our daily lives. Exactly. Dylan's, Dylan's wetsuit is far too tight to talk about the <laughs> well, They look, call me the Ryan Gosling of the ocean. <laughs> Ryan Gosling of the ocean. That will sell Cape <laughs> Ryan. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan calls himself yeah, Ryan Gosling. Right. I call myself. Right. <laughs> he talks about himself. <laughs> oh, I love it, guys. Honestly, you know the energy that you guys have brought to this podcast has been really, really, you know, welcomed, and it, it's so interesting to meet people who have a very similar outtake or, or outlook on what the conservation industry needs, um, including the rock and roll, and it's really really enlightening to chat to you guys a little bit more so just just from behalf of phoebe now just really wanted to thank you for you know giving us a bit of your time and you know just chatting to us a little bit more about cape brad as well as the initiatives that you're under and also just your background that you guys have been working on um but before we before we leave one of the other things that is obviously quite important is if anybody would like to get in touch with you uh, be it via social media platforms or if it's just a direct line of contact, is there a way in which they can do that? Yeah, we, we've got a website, www.caperad.com. That's rad with two Ds. 
And we're on all the socials and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And you can find us at Cape Rad on all of those platforms. We've got a YouTube channel. I'm sure I'm skipping something, but we shouldn't be too hard to find. Perfect. We can put all of that information in the um, in the show notes, which so people can find it if they're they're looking to get in touch with you guys. And I think we don't want to take up too much more of your time. So just a huge thank you for coming on the podcast. It's actually been really interesting to chat about marine conservation and see quite how well it parallels with the terrestrial bushveld conservation that we're more used to. So that has been great to kind of get our brains ticking over. And as soon as we are back in Cape Town, we will come and get on the shark course because I'm inspired. I definitely want to do it. <laughs> cool, guys. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us chat. And uh, speak to you soon. Awesome. Sure thing, Thank guys. you so Cheers. much. Yeah. It was really refreshing to chat to these guys. I mean, my understanding of marine conservation is quite limited. So it's been a bit more of a learning experience, this podcast, and I've really enjoyed it. No, it's been amazing. It's been really good just to see how fresh their approach is and how academically driven, but also educationally driven it is. And I think it really is an amazing opportunity for anyone who wants to do a bit more than the usual tourist route in Cape Town. You guys need to go and see Cape Rad. And I just think it will open up a whole new world to you. And especially if you come from the bush, this will just complement everything that you've learned and shape it to really allow conservation to become part of your daily life. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, oddly enough, I wish we could see more of this when it comes to, you know, the typical bushveld safari experience. I mean, we do have volunteer courses, but it just doesn't have the same kind of feel that Cape Rad is working on at the moment. So it's it's been quite an enlightening experience. Yep. Absolutely amazing. We'll put all of their details in the show notes. So if you guys want to get in touch with them or if you're planning a trip to Cape Town and you want to chat to them, you can go and find all their details there. With regards to us, you can get more information on us at thatchandearth.com. All of our social medias are at thatched underscore earth. Um, and please feel free to give the podcast a like and a subscribe and a rating. That would be fantastic. And we will see you next week. So without further ado, I'm Lawrence. And I'm Phoebe. Bye. Peace.